As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. So he posted things like, I'm not a rapist yet and I don't want to be. There are other options. This will be a 10 or 20 year thing. The terrible details that have come out of the inquest into the murders of Sydney teenagers Jack and Jennifer Edwards in 2018 by their father John had me texting back and forth with author and journalist Megan Norris, who, as our listeners will know from past episodes, has written in depth about fathers who kill their children. 
This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Megan has done years of research about stalking and the murder of children by their fathers as the ultimate form of family violence, intended to punish the mothers of their children in the most devastating way. As we saw with Olga Edwards, the mum of Jack, age 15, and Jennifer, 13. Olga took her own life five months after her ex-husband killed their children. We start with Megan talking about how stalking was missed as a red flag with John Edwards. I've written a number of books with different murders, as you know, and stalking was always a background. It was it always seemed to feature as a background somewhere, even where people didn't think they'd been stalked. Victims of crime didn't think they'd been stalked. When you looked at the facts, they had been stalked. So it's much more prevalent as a sort of red flag to homicide. And, you know, my feeling is with it, when you look at these cases, there's always... There's always either that subtle stalking or not so subtle stalking. And in this case, the stalking was so premeditated and obvious and dangerous that it was the biggest red flag all along. And yet it slipped through the system due to various reasons within the police record keeping, within the computerized database, that it never came up as a red flag where it ought to have. His teenage children that he murdered, Jack was 15 and Jennifer was 13, And, you know, it's awful. It came out that, you know, Jack, uh, both the children were terrified of their father and Jack had a cricket bat with him as he he slept to, you know, to try and defend himself. It just seems like we keep hearing stuff about the violence that's displayed, how these offenders slip through the cracks. Do you think that enough has been related between stalking behaviours and family violence and homicide? Because you did write a book, Look What You Made Me Do. And it's about fathers who kill in this domestic violence context. Well, that was interesting because in those cases, the victims were the children. But that's just another way. With these guys, it's just they're revenge killings. In other words, the children weren't actually the target. As I don't believe they were in this case, I really don't. They weren't the target, although they're they're the collateral damage to punish the partner who leaves. So, you know, what can I do to make you suffer for the rest of your life? Well, killing you is a bit too easy, so I'll kill the kids and you'll suffer with what you have done. And I think there's a very strong element of that in the Edwards inquest that's before the court at the moment. The, the fact is that those children were living in fear of their lives. They told psychologists long before they were murdered that they were terrified of their father and they did not want to see him. And that, and that was not taken on board. The level of stalking in this case is is astonishing. You know, he planned it, he hired a car, he hired a car because he was smart enough to realize if he cruised around and found them, they were at a secret address. The wife had separated, they were divorced, she'd taken the kids and they were living at a secret address. But he knew if he found them, even if he found them, if he turned up in a in his own car, the kids might be alerted to that. So what he did was he hired a car and then the day before the, the murders, he went to the St. Mary's Pistol Club and he got his firearms, five firearms, including the Glock, which he used to kill the children. He got those out of a locker. He hired the car. He waited. He followed the the young girl from school, so he must have been tracking her. He followed her onto a bus. He then followed her on in his car while she walked to the house where they were living, the secret address, 
and then followed her into the house and the children were found huddled under a desk. That's what the inquest has heard in the last week. So, you know, these kids were seriously fighting for their lives and mum had told everyone that. But what had happened was he applied for a firearms licence in 2017, which he should never have been given. And there was a glitch in the police system whereby they immediately, if someone's applying for a firearm, the firearms licensing place immediately does a check on that person to find out if there's anything in the background, anything violent, anything a bit scary that might prevent them from getting a firearms license. And the check revealed nothing relevant because it was loaded by an algorithm. And because of this glitch, that information did not come up. So the fact that mum had been to the police about eight months earlier, telling the police, making a report to the police saying that the children were being physically abused by him, that they were being threatened, that, that he was violent. None of that, that report came up. And other reports were not even put into the system properly. So there's, it wasn't a, a really a red flag. And even when he stalked his wife and joined her yoga class after they separated, and she was so spooked, she immediately went to the police, to a different police station at Hornsby, and reported that. They did a check on her, the police, but they didn't do a check on her husband, her ex-husband. And if they had known he'd been banned from the yoga studio that day by the yoga teacher, that would have been a red flag, another red flag. So that wasn't done. That didn't come up on the, on the check. The fact that the kids, there'd been allegations of violence towards the children, that didn't come up on the check. So they, he was granted a license without them knowing any of this, without them knowing that he'd bought a puppy. And he had he'd bought a puppy because the daughter was an animal lover. And he abused that puppy because he knew that would get her to the little girl to visit him just to check on the dog. That's so manipulative. There were so many things and none of these things. You know, the report that Olga, his, his wife, made to the police was that he'd assaulted Jack and Jennifer, the teenagers, three times in 2015. You know, that there was an older daughter, an adult daughter, who'd applied for an AVO against her father. This Edwards had got, had got ten children by seven previous partners. One of them had moved to Queensland, one of those previous partners, and changed her name because she was so frightened of him. So or, there was this whole background of family abuse, of stalking, of people taking out intervention orders to protect themselves, and still this slips through the net. So I think the focus is very much on where the system went wrong and how it went wrong. But the fact is, you know, it's too late for this family and this sort of thing keeps happening. You've spent a lot of time talking to women for whom their children have been murdered by the estranged fathers. It must be absolutely heartbreaking and so frustrating for these women who are trying to get awareness of this issue, who have been out there for years. Some of them many years trying to raise awareness of this must be so hard for them to hear this because it keeps happening as you said it keeps happening and it what's it's really sad you know obviously this wife olga was so despairing a few months later she she took her own life it it was an unbearable pain to live with you know that was the whole point of the crime that would be an unbearable he killed himself after he killed the kids but it would have been an unbearable thing for her to live with an unbearable thing these women that i that i've dealt with that I've written about that I've interviewed at great length over many years you know when all these things happen I'll often get a text saying it's happened again and again and again and uh, and these are people that were waving these red flags 
in the early 90s, Michelle Steck, who she sticks in my mind. She sticks in my mind every time, every time I hear of one of these new cases because Michelle Steck was a very young woman. She married very young and had two little kids and her ex-husband murdered the children. Well, she murdered one of the children, murdered the little girl who was about three years old over the Christmas period, which was dreadful. So he took her on an excess visit and didn't bring her back. And uh, there was uh, that poor mother spent the whole of that Christmas not knowing where they were, but suspecting, fearing that the little girl was probably dead because he was so unstable it wasn't funny. Now, that this is before, this was in the early 90s, so this was before stalking legislation. And what had happened in that case, she had eventually plucked the courage up to leave him. He was stalking her during the relationship. He was monitoring the odometer on the car, looking at the mileage, ringing her a thousand times a day to make sure she was where she said. He would ring the landline, make sure she was at home. She couldn't do anything. She was changing the baby's nappy. The phone was ringing. And if she didn't answer immediately, he'd be very, very angry. And then she'd have to deal with that when he came home. And what eventually uh, happened is she did pluck up the courage to leave him. And then he seemed to come to terms with it, or so she thought. That was a ploy. And he even offered to help her move to a country town and help to move her furniture and sort of seemed to accept the separation, but he didn't. And uh, after she'd moved in, he helped her move in. What she didn't know was he bugged the place with listening devices. She'd got no idea of this. So he was able to listen to what she was doing, who she was talking to. He knew if she'd got a boyfriend or he knew that she'd started a university course. He totally stalked every aspect of her life without her even knowing. And what happened was one day she was she was leaving the house with the children in the back of the car. She had a baby and a toddler and she'd forgotten something and she came back into the home and she heard the upstairs toilet flush. And she'd ha- she knew he was in the house and she'd had this sense of being watched just had a sense of things being moved. She just felt there was, she felt that she was going crazy. And she went straight out, got in the car, drove to the police station. And the police attended the house where they found him in the roof. He'd been there for several weeks. The place stunk. You know, there were old wrappers and Coke cans and God knows what. He'd been coming down and using the bathroom when she wasn't in. They took pity on him. This is, so the guy says, I know I'm desperate to see my kids. I'm hurting. It's all all a bit sort of tragic. He puts on a pity show. The police allowed his request to have a shower in his ex-wife's home so that he could clean himself up before they took him down to the police station, where he was given a talking to and released with a slap on the wrist. He then returned from the police station, and the stalking continued the same day, the harassment, and he actually set up a makeshift camp in a vacant block across the road from where Michelle lived. And she didn't know he was there. He was still watching her. He was still watching her. And he eventually then took off with the little girl and he uh, went into the bush where he, it wasn't enough for him to kill the little girl. He kept a death diary. So he recorded every last agonizing moment before taking his own life so that that diary would be found and would haunt Michelle. You know, it just went way beyond. And that, that was a perfect example of stalking. You know, if someone, if some stranger broke into your house and was hiding in your roof, do you think the police would allow that person to have a shower? Um, you'd hope not. But, but after that, Michelle went to Canberra. She banged down doors. She, waved, she, she made the biggest waves ever to try and attract attention to this. You know, she told people all along, he will kill my kids. My children are in danger. And still she was forced to allow them 
to ha- their father to have access. And this is what's happened in this case. Now, Megan, you have been reporting on crime for for decades and you've written many books and our listeners are familiar with some of your work. But for you, you do have a particular interest in the correlation between stalking and family violence and homicide. What was the case that first got you curious about stalking and the nature of stalking and the psychology of it? Well, I've always been interested in it. I covered courts in the 70s where no one had heard of stalking and when guys that were, that, you know, where relationships ended. It was very prevalent in separation. You know, it was very common in separation. So I would see a lot of these cases coming to court for intervention orders. And they were never treated very seriously, you know, until they escalated to something really serious, by which time usually a woman is dead. You know, they, they were never taken seriously. But when I came here, I was quite interested in the Mr. Cool case because I wondered, and that wasn't random, you know, it's like who was watching who there? Was, you know, I wasn't. I was never. I was very interested in whether there was a stalking background to that case. And uh, and so, you know, over the years, I've done lots of cases, but I became particularly interested in stalking with, when I covered the Rachel Barber case. And that was a young, pretty young teenager from Melbourne, the dancer, that had big dreams of being in musicals one day, and she was stalked. She was the eldest daughter in a family of three. And across the road was another family with three daughters, all a bit older. And the eldest daughter, who was a bit of a misfit, troubled girl in that family, had a a fixation on Rachel. And she actually stalked Rachel and eventually murdered her. In fact, she she drafted a blueprint for murder. But when I got the the diaries and the writings that the killer wrote and all all the scribblings that she'd done, it was obsessive in the extreme. And it was very clear that she had systematically stalked Rachel over a long period of time before she killed her. Now, what's unusual is women killing women, especially outside the family. You know, women really don't kill outside the family. But this girl absolutely stalked Rachel and she'd do things like she would say you know I saw her at the bus stop she's had her hair dyed Rachel's dyed her hair oh she's got a new boyfriend I've seen her with a boyfriend so she was really watching her and she'd applied for Rachel's birth certificate so that was an interesting case altogether because not only was she stalking Rachel there was evidence in there of stalker fusion I don't know if you've heard of stalker fusion no explain that to us well stalker fusion is where stalker and I've seen several cases where this you can see it now that you're aware of it where the stalker becomes so obsessed with the with their targets that they almost morph into them their boundaries become you know they don't respect boundaries that's why they stalk you know they 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 break every rule but the boundaries become so blurred they almost become their target and in the Rachel Barber case Caroline had written a, a plan called how to how to change in 9 weeks and it was a, basically it was a, a reinvention transformation plan whereby she would she would assume Rachel's identity so her plan got a bit warped there she was going to murder Rachel because she saw Rachel as being the perfect girl and she was a very uh, overweight miserable unhappy troubled girl um Caroline Reed Robertson the killer so she had this plan that she would murder Rachel and come back in her likeness, reinvent herself. So she'd cut out pictures of Rachel Barber um, as, a, as a young sort of ingenue. She'd got pictures of other young ingenues at the time, like Katie Holmes and Claire Danes, who were young 
soap stars at the time. And she'd cut these pictures out and made up a face that was what she was going to be like when she reinvented herself in Rachel Barber's likeness. And basically, she was going to be a hybrid of Rachel Barber and these other young ingenues. Rachel sort of typified that pretty young teen, you know, that that sort of glamorous little teenage girl that Caroline Reed Robertson dreamed of becoming. And she'd applied for Rachel's birth certificate. She had started to call herself Jem Southall. Southall is um, Rachel's mother's maiden name. So she was sort of crossing the line, you know. She slowly, when you follow the writings, she was slowly morphing in her head, in her fantasies, into this fantasy girl. And um, interestingly, by the time it got to the courts and got to the... um, and got as far as the Supreme Court, she had shed, being in prison, she'd been arrested for murder, she had shed several kilos, many kilos, and grown her hair long and wavy and actually looked like the drawing of the person that she, you know, the, the photo fit person that she was going to become. That's stalker fusion. We have had a lot of listeners ask us about that case. Now, Caroline Reed Robertson has been released from jail, hasn't she? Yes, she's since been released from jail. It sounds like it's not someone who doesn't have issues that gets into stalker fusion. What propelled her into this obsessive behaviour? Well, she had a borderline personality disorder as well. That came out in the court case. And in the studies that they've done into stalker stalking behaviour and stalkers, especially female stalkers, because women are very, very persistent, very, and... Uh, there's that expression, you know, hell hath no fury. And it's very true when it comes to stalking cases. They're, they're very rarely dangerous. Like, they very rarely escalate to serious violence. But they can. But they rarely do. This was an unusual case in that regard. But uh, just that whole um, borderline personality disorder, they found in studies that often people people who have a propensity to stalk will often not just stalk one person. When that target removes itself, maybe that target will get, go and live overseas. They'll get a fix on a new one that's almost like the one they had. They sort of have a type. And I think in uh, in the case of Caroline Lee Robertson, that borderline personality disorder did have a fair, a fair bearing on the way she saw herself and the way she saw Rachel. Sort of it's sort of spa. It's, it's almost like another dimension. And in the studies they've done into stalking, I spoke. I know a, a very um, good uh, forensic psychologist, criminologist, who's got quite a handle on it. And I really like talking to him. And we have these long chats about these things. But he he says there's often you often find they've got a borderline personality disorder and or some form of brain damage or or brain malfunction so that the frontal lobe of the brain doesn't function too well. It's got, got a glitch. And so that that's the part of the brain that controls impulse or poor impulse. So it causes impulsive behavior. And it's also the part of the brain that controls feelings of revenge and justice. So when that part of the brain isn't working as it ought to, you've got that it's almost like a switchover, especially a lot of stalkers will stalk when they're rejected. They'll, they'll do this stalking stuff in the idea that someone is welcoming that, you know, that some stalkers will feel like it's a romantic interest. It's not, but, you know, it's not a, a romance. It's in their head, but they've, they'll get a fix on someone and think that person is in love with them. That person doesn't probably know they exist. 
But when they're rejected, there's like a flip over. So that part of the brain that doesn't function properly, that causes them to impulsively stalk and turn up at places and bombard them with emails and that sort of thing. When it's, when it's not working properly, it sort of flips over so that they then become focused on revenge and getting even. Look, I know that the issue of borderline personality disorder, there's some controversy around that diagnosis. And we're not saying that people with borderline personality disorder are are all stalkers. No, they're not. And not all stalkers have borderline personality disorder either. It sounds like people who display stalking behaviour, is it something that is to an element out of their control or is that being too simplistic? Well, it sort of is and it isn't. If you've got a part of the brain that's just not working properly... You know, it, so it's identifying that, um, and that's sort of where they talk about prevention. Stalking is categorised into, I think, four or five different categories. So that there are there are different sorts. Like there's the erotomaniac. They're the, they're, they're the ones. Erotomaniacs are the ones who are motivated to stalk by love, not revenge. They're almost seeking intimacy or a love or a relationship of some kind with their target. So you know, they'll often they'll often target people they get a fix on. It might be a complete stranger as well. So they're not motivated by revenge. But when they're rejected, they can become very revengeful. And it can turn ugly. Intimacy seekers are the stalkers who will target total strangers. So it might be a celebrity. And they come, they'll, might watch someone on telly all the time. And they, they stalk because they get an, a delusional belief that they're romantically linked to their target. And they persist in their stalking because they have an unrealistic belief that the victim or the target will return that love, which, of course, never happens. So, you know, those are the people like um, Brittany Spears had a stalker who started sending a strange emails and strange messages saying that he was hunting her or, or watching her, and she became very spooked. That was an intimacy seeker, you know, so that they, they, got, they got tired of that. And also Athena Rolando, she was a young stalker who broke into Brad Pitt's how she was an infatuated stalker and she broke into Brad Pitt's Hollywood home and was found in bed wearing his pajamas. They, they, they just get a fix on someone and think they're going to fall in love and, you know, they'll send cards that are often thrown in the bin, but they think they've got a relationship. So that's a slightly different kind of stalker. Shania Twain was stalked by, by a sort of a rotomaniac who, who sent her loads of love letters and turned up at her grandmother's funeral. You know, so there's that kind of stalker. Then there's the predatory resentful stalker, and they're the sort, like predatory stalker, Ted Bundy, serial killer Ted Bundy, was a predatory stalker. And he totally targeted strangers, women, and they're the people who stalk strangers, usually women, for power and control. They're not looking for a relationship, in other words, like the intimate, you know, the intimacy seekers or the erotomaniacs. Predatory stalkers are men, usually men, they stalk women for power and control. They don't want a relationship and they take great pleasure in gathering information about the victim and fantasizing about physically and sexually assaulting them. So they're commonly depressed. They often have substance abuse or sexual disorders and they're, they're usually sexual serial killers like Ted Bundy. So he's, he's very typical of that kind. Mark Chapman, the guy who fatally shot John Lennon outside his New York apartment in 1980, he was a resentful stalker. So he was—he basically murdered John Lennon to achieve fame and immortality. And he kind of did, didn't he? Uh, he did. And, the, and for years, he'd obsessively idolised the former Beatle. 
until you read Anthony Fawcett's biography, One Day at a Time, which was Lennon's biography. And he then became fixated over the perceived hypocrisy of the star because he thought, here's a star preaching love, peace and simplicity. And he's living a life in the lap of luxury in New York. So that growing fixation on that hypocrisy motivated him to buy a gun and fly to New York, where he stalked and fatally shot Lennon in front of his wife. You know, so his obsession prompted him to marry a Yoko lookalike whilst he was in jail serving 20 years for the murder. And he sort of morphed into his slain victim. And that's that's what I'm talking. It's where the perpetrator over-identifies with the target, merges with them. That's all confusion. But he was depressed. Chapman was depressed, suicidal and mentally ill. And he's been repeatedly de- denied parole. He's been, I think, not long ago, he was denied parole for the 10th time because the authorities see him as ongoing danger. So, you know, he might find a new target now. He's got rid of one. In the case of, say, John Edwards, these fathers who kill, they kill their children. And from what you've been writing about for a number of years, and you're one of the, I think, the first people in Australia to be writing about this, it's the ultimate form of family violence because it's done to punish the partner. So how would the stalking in context of intimate partner violence be categorised? Well, I think it's that it comes typically under revenge, doesn't it? It, it, it it? It's driven by revenge. And often these people suffer from some sort of mental illness or delusion. You know, they they nearly always do. Jason Dalton, the former One Nation candidate up in Queensland, he followed his wife all the way to the Gold Coast, his ex-wife when she fled. He followed her all the way down here and rocked up on the drive in his car minutes behind her and tried to attack her. And he, and you know, he eventually killed their two children. That was another, he, uh, another sort of planned thing where he'd googled suicides. He'd, he'd sent a message, a horrible uh, email to his former partner, to the children's mother, hours before he did what he did. He suffocated the children. He with a polythene bag. He staged them on the bed. He put the little girl. They're only a baby and a little girl of about three. He dressed the little girl in mum's. Wedding jewellery, you know, it's totally staged. He wrote the date, the time of their death over the headboard of the bed, and then he suffocated himself. You know, so he did all that, staged the scene to add to the suffering. It was total revenge, and he got his revenge. And his partner was the only Dalton, which she's now remarried and has little children, has young children of her own. But I mean, the journey's never over. The journey, that journey is never over. But they know that in these cases, these rejected stalkers, rejected, I think you call them rejected stalkers, they nearly always target a former partner. Although sometimes they'll, they'll target an acquaintance, say a work acquaintance or, or a professional like um, a work associate or a counsellor with whom they've had a prior close relationship. And the stalking's triggered by a desire to rekindle the relationship or to exact revenge because it ended. And I think with these men, often they they don't do this. Not They don't do it when the women leave. They do it when they re, re, they, they're sort of tipped over the edge when they realize she's not coming back. So whilst the danger time, and everyone will talk about the danger time being when, when women leave, it's not always when women leave. It's dangerous then, but it's when they realize they are not coming back. And that's when they put these feelings of revenge into action. And there's a real sense that these men view their women and children as their property. Is that correct in, in thinking that? Always. It's, it's always. They're always seen as an extension of the assets of the family, you know, the family assets. They're part of the, sh- the shuttles, aren't they, really? 
and they're always sort of seen in that way. Do you know, uh, in the early 90s in Melbourne, uh, Professor Paul Mullen and uh, a psychologist called Rosie Purcell, they set up the world's first stalking and threat management centre in Melbourne. And they profiled 145 convicted stalkers. So they talked to them about why they did what they did and what they, how they did it. And they examined the impact of those crimes on the victims. And most of the victims reported being monitored, watched, photographed, repeatedly phoned, contacted electronically, having the property damaged, being sent offensive material. And these were the days before social networking, so the early 90s. So to maximize public humiliation, they'd often circulate dreadful images, you know, post them to their employer. So I think some of these women that uh, the mothers that I spoke to, particularly those whose children were murdered in the early 90s, they'd had embarrassing photos of them breastfeeding sent to their boss. You know, stuff like that. Or faxing really embarrassing material to, to the workplace that anyone could read. Anyone would pick up off the fax. Nowadays, it's worse. It's electronically done, which is why the intervention orders have changed to cover, you know, electronic stalking. Uh, there was a figures from a 2012 personal safety survey showed that one in five Australian women and one in 13 men are stalked every year. The sad thing is only 30% of all those women will contact the police when their stalker is male. Why do you think that is? Too afraid to. Afraid they won't be believed, whether they don't have enough evidence to prove it. The internet provides easy and instant access into people's lives and greater an anonymity. The chance of getting caught is is lessened if you can do things anonymously on Facebook or and you know set up a an alias. Former homicide detective Charlie Bazina will be joining us live on Saturday, October 10, to talk about his experience with investigating stalkers who became killers. You can join us too. All you have to do is go to nottodeep.com.au and grab a ticket to watch on our live stream. You'll also get to submit a question for Charlie and our other guests, crime writer Andrew Rule, who'll be talking about the experience of helping Chopper Reed write his first book, and Julia Robson from Chasing Charlie, who's become an expert on cyber-stalking. nottodeep.com.au is where you go for your ticket. There's a link on our Facebook page, and if you're not free at 7.30 on October 10, don't stress, because you can watch it back at your leisure. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Journalist and author Megan Norris is our guest today, and she spent many years helping women tell their stories of extreme family violence and stalking. Coming up, Megan tells us the terrifying story behind the Susie Lampler Foundation that works to reduce the risk of violence in the workplace. But first, a stalking story from Melbourne that's like something straight out of a horror movie. A guy called Damon Stevens in Melbourne, he just caught a fleeting glimpse of a young woman on his Melbourne tram in 2011. She wasn't even aware she'd met him. She didn't even see him. But that chance encounter was enough to spark an instant fixation. And that put her firmly on the radar of one of Australia's most dangerous and incorrigible stalkers. That was what he was about to become. So things took a bit of a sinister turn when he ran into the woman on a psychology course at Melbourne University, where he knew her name. She was shocked. He knew her name and everything about her. So obviously he was stalking her before then. And you'd have to think it wasn't an accident that he rocked up on that university course. But he immediately started bombarding her with Facebook messages. And when she ignored them, he started posting others using anonymous accounts. And he had a bizarre alias called Charlie the Fly or Charlie Fly. So she wasn't sure who this person was. She didn't know it was the bloke in her class. And he was considerably older. And then he started monitoring her movements and secretly photographing her. And when she begged him to leave her alone, after she realized who it was, he blamed her for his creepy stalking and threatened to pay her back. So he posted things like, I'm not a rapist yet and I don't want to be. There are other options. This will be a 10 or 20 year thing. So it's quite menacing. And she was so frightened for her safety, she applied for a personal protection order. And he responded to the rejection by threatening to harm her and her family. So he sent another message saying, just a red rag to a ball. You know, you're worth me spending the rest of my life in prison for. You shall become the hunted. Those were his threats. And she did become the hunted. So the stalking then persisted until August 2014. When the police raided his home and found hundreds of images of child exploitation and thousands of his victim, and he was arrested and put sent to jail. So for two years, he was off the grid from August 2014. By 2016, he was back again, and he came back with a vengeance, warning the woman that he was more on edge than ever, and he intended to devote the rest of his life to destroying hers. So, you know... Going to jail didn't stop him. Um, When the harassment continued, he was arrested and remanded in custody. But by May 2017, he was back out on bail. And a psychological assessment determined that while his interactions with his victim were odd, they didn't believe he had any psychotic infatuation, but he did. So his Facebook postings told a different story. He posted, 
I've been in prison for the last eight months for a slight cyber-stalking misunderstanding slash love story. So he saw it as a romance. He's put out on bail for a while looking for new friends or victims. So he showed no insight into his behaviour, and he was blaming the victim for what he perceived was a failed romance. He had no sort of insight into the fact that he was doing it. He, he posted saying, you have no idea who I am or how far I will go. And he, he did that from an anonymous social networking account. He then said, my life is now dedicated to slicing your face off on your own blog. 30 years is nothing to me. I will plan this so none of you have any choice. You may now call me Odin for now and master as I slice and pull your face off. I'm not sure if your eyes will come off then, but it won't matter. You will have seen my face and you will know. Just, just totally freaky stuff. But then he spiraled completely out of control. He attacked his mother and bit her hand so badly he almost bit her thumb off. He then burned his mother's house to the ground and filmed himself standing in the blaze, which he photographed on his phone and sent to his images to his victim, saying, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to get revenge. And you'll see what you've done. So, you know, this look what you made me do sort of thing. It's in that too, isn't it? Now, this wasn't a former partner. She had no links with him whatsoever. She was a total stranger that he got a fix on. So, But he had the same sort of driven revenge sort of um, motivation that, that partners have, you know, ex-partners have. So basically, he was just another face in the crowd on the tram. She never even knew she'd seen him, but he'd seen her. And he, he went to jail for uh, eight years. He was jailed for a minimum of uh, eight years for a string of offences, you know, stalking, arson, serious assault, child pornography, breaches of bail, breaches of AVOs, but it didn't stop him. Yeah, wow, that's terrifying. His reign of terror for that complete stranger lasted five years. Oh, I don't know how you come back from that. You must be always on edge. So you'd say, like Mark Chapman, John Lennon's killer, well, is he going to come out and get a fix on someone else? It's that sort of personality. Uh, Lisa Hannon, the judge that sentenced um, Stevens in the county court, she heard that he was an intimacy seeker with a complex personality matrix. So, you know, he got problems. Schizotypal, paranoid, narcissistic, obsessive traits and likely schizophrenia triggered by cannabis use. And he had an underlying borderline personality disorder. So, you know, that features again and again. And Wayne Petherick, the criminal psychologist, he's at Bond University in Queensland, and he's studied some of Australia's most prolific stalkers. And he said what he's found is some serial stalkers, like Stevens, when they're rejected, they experience feelings of humiliation and, and embarrassment, and they stalk because they feel mistreated. And they stalk to exert power and control by inducing fear in their victim. So it's like taking back that power by humiliating and frightening and stalking their victims. So they see them, and often they see themselves, as, as Stevens did, they see themselves as the victim. You know, look what you made me do. You've made me do this. So they see themselves as the victim, and they feel justified because they're then on a crusade for revenge. And once they're on it, they are powerless to stop themselves. So that's what he's saying. The stalking then has the potential to escalate into really serious violence. God, that's frightening. And that's why that link with homicide is so serious. Studies here showed that only 2% of homicide cases had a stalking background. Well, we know that's crazy. 
that's absolutely crazy because even from the cases that I wrote about in Look What You Made Me Do, I studied, what, seven cases. It was in every one, you know. So it's, it's much greater than 2%. But in the UK, a 2017 UK inquiry, and it was conducted for National Stalking Awareness Week, it found, it examined 358 murders that had taken place in the UK between 2012 and 2014. And they found that stalking featured in 94% of homicides. Let's talk about that. That's done by the Susie Lampler Trust. It's a very well-regarded charity in the UK that does a lot of work on support for victims of stalking, but also education. Tell us about Susie Lampler. Susie Lampler was 25 years old and she disappeared in London in 1986 after making an appointment to show a a prospective buyer around a house, a vacant house. She's never seen again. Because she went to show this prospective buyer around a vacant house in London. Her body's never been found. Police now believe she was abducted and murdered by a man who called himself Mr. Kipper. And they believe Mr. Kipper had been stalking her and had set a trap, lured her to this house and abducted and murdered her. As a result, the Susie Lamplew Trust was set up by the family as a legacy to, to Susie. Uh, and the Lamplew inquiry showed they did this study for National Stalking Awareness Week looking at the link between the background of stalking with, you know, culminating in homicide. And uh, the Lampton Inquiry showed that stalking was a key indicator for very serious potential future issues of serious harm. So it, it revealed an irrefutable link between stalking and homicide. And they also dis- discovered from the research they did that the risk of murder increases significantly when the stalker, ha- stalker has a borderline personality disorder. So the study found that in each of the stalking murders, they looked at 358 murders committed over a two-year period. The study found that in each of those stalking murders, certain key behaviours were evident, and they included an obsession or fixation with the victim, which if you think about the Damon Stevens case, he had an absolute obsession with his victim. Caroline Reed Robertson had had a fix on Rachel Barber, Mark Chapman had a fix on John Lennon. You know, so you, you can see where this is. So they, well, they were saying that a, a history of stalking and borderline personality were prominent features in those murders and that they included uh, the, the, the key behaviours, obsession, fixation, threats to kill. So often they've threatened to kill the, the victim. Maybe they've left an anonymous phone message or, you know, posted something like Damon Stevens did on Facebook. So, repeated photographing of the victim filming or keeping the victim under close surveillance or control and letting them know. You know, they don't just take photos. As in the Damon Stevens case, they let you know. They they post them to you, but they let you know you're being watched. So that, you know, that whole thing comes in. When when police raided Caroline Reed Robertson's apartment, they found absolutely piles of disturbing scribblings. It was almost a single white female plan to kill Rachel and become her. And they found other notes that revealed that she'd been stalked for years, you know, everything about her because she was the perfect girl. I was just scanning on the Susie Lampler Trust website. They've done a lot of work around health for stalking victims, workplace safety. I think the laws changed or policies changed in the wake of Susie's disappearance where you know, like say real estate agents wouldn't go to a property by themselves or people going to view a house, you know, it's advised that you go and do it with someone else. Well, it, it, it is. And I know with the Susie Lampo inquiry, they looked at all sorts of things. Like for a start, if 
if you're as, as bad as it is, like most of those murders are domestic, you know, stalking is huge in, in separate after separation. So it's huge in domestic violence murders. You know, it's huge. But what they did find is the one good thing was that they found a police response. So if you've got a crazy ex that's stalking you, the police reaction to that, their response is speedy. They'll they'll support you. They understand. Police understand that link now between stalking an ex-partner and killing an ex-partner. So they're proactive and it's dealt with and they take out intervention orders and the safety of the victim becomes prime, you know. But what what, what chance do you have when you're when your stalker is unknown, when you have a stranger stalker. So not taking stranger stalker serious, stalking seriously is still a massive issue. It's a massive issue. I think that we are getting a handle on it in Australia. I think the police have. Uh, you know, in the Damon Stevens case, he went to jail for two years. I guess they try to operate within within what they can in the court system and then unfortunately yeah. this guy just kept doing it, went to jail, then came out, kept doing it until he – I think I read he also stabbed some strangers, didn't he, in St Kilda or something? He just randomly – Oh, he did. When he, when he went on his crazy rampage, he sort of spiralled out of control. Um, that's the day that he attacked his mother. He burned her house to the ground. He photographed himself in the flames and sent those to his victims saying, look out, you're next, you know. He then went off on a rampage around Melbourne where he stabbed two backpackers outside a backpacker hostel. Just complete strangers. And he really was really very dangerous. So, you know, but it, it he absolutely escalated into something else. And obviously there were mental health issues in that too, but he, he was very, very dangerous. But, but when women stalk, you know, there is bad. So they're less likely to be physically violent. I mean, Rachel Barber's killer was the exception to the rule. They're less likely to escalate to murder. They're just, but they can cause widespread disruption. So, for example, I did a case in Melbourne in 2001 of a couple who became prisoners in their own home when a dispute with their vindictive next-door neighbour over a fence escalated into guerrilla warfare. And she went for six years, this woman next door, and it all started with with John doing a favour for her, and she she misread the signs, and, and she turned up, on the doorstep in a negligee, and he said, oh, no way. She was a lot older. She was an older woman. He said, no, 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 no. I've just, she, I think she called him on the pretext of needing an errand or a job doing and then turned up in this negligee. And when he rejected her, she turned feral. So for six years, they endured hostile phone calls, taunts, vexatious complaints to the police, which become really bad, and vexatious lawsuits. So she, she, they racked up huge legal costs, fighting her over totally vexatious claims like she said that she made up false allegations about everything from vermin infestation she said they've got rats and they've got they've got possums and she complained about their worm farm she complained about their weeds she called her cat bitch and she repeatedly yelled bitch 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 from the backyard to to drive them mad and then she cut a hole in the fence which separated her pool from their garden and she was caught chanting, four little children playing in the yard, one jumped the fence, and then there were three. And she was encouraging or enticing the children to come through the hole and drown in the pool. After about three years of this torment, she penned an anonymous sexually explicit poison pen letter, or several, to the wife next door, accusing the husband of being a promiscuous adulterer who slept with prostitutes. 
It was totally crazy. They knew who it was. They just couldn't prove it. And then she anonymously contacted Human Services and the Children's Primary School and alleged that the man, you know, the father was molesting them and that he'd given them a sexually transmitted disease. It's quite frightening, isn't it? It just it all depends on, you know, you could be living next door to someone like that or just, as you said, someone could see you or you could have a partner who is dangerous and then it just, as we're hearing with the inquest into the murder of Jack and Jennifer Edwards by their father, John, as you said, there were these red flags that came up. Totally. You know, there's no way that anyone would have granted him a firearm if they had been aware of the more recent complaints of assault on the children, three allegations of assault on the children. You know, there's no way. He was actually denied admission to one firearms club in that area in Sydney. He was, they, they, they refused his application for membership. So whether they knew who he was or they just got a sense, I don't know, or whether someone knew of them, I don't know, but he was refused um, membership of that particular pistol club. But he joined another one instead. And he kept all these firearms in a locker there. So, you know, he, he, was, he was dangerous. And when you look at the, the lengths he went to, I mean, you have to assume he'd always intended to kill himself as well. But, you know, he'd accomplished what he set out to do because the next door neighbor actually caught him. He heard what sounded like gunshots and the neighbor came out and saw him skipping down the stairs. He was actually skipping down the stairs. And the neighbor said, what have you done? And he just didn't speak. He was in his own place, his own little zone, and he carried on walking and drove away. But he accomplished what he set out to do, which was to destroy the person who he felt had rejected him. So it's, it's very, very interesting. What's worrying is, in, I think it was around 2014, that the, the, there was a study conducted, a grassroots study was conducted in high school of a cross-section of Australian high school students, asking them about family, family violence and what they thought about, was it okay to slap a woman? You know, had they ever slapped a girlfriend? Did they think that was okay? And what was really interesting is the young girls, I think they were aged between sort of 14 and 18. Most of those young female students who were interviewed said they had no problem, they could see nothing wrong at all with your partner electronically monitoring you, either through an app on your phone or, you know, some other device. They, could, they had no problem with that. And they had no problem with boyfriends slapping you if you deserved it. And we've seen some ads, haven't we, about monitoring and the woman saying, well, it's That's only because right. it, he loves me, that kind of stuff. They're quite powerful. And it's actually quite common, believe it or not, in sort of older retired people. I've, I'm a grandmother and I've heard other people in my age group and older who've said, oh, no, you know, I've got a, a thing on my wife's phone, an app on my wife's phone so I can see where she is at all times. And they say it's to keep them safe. Oh, I'm concerned about her safety. But it's really controlling. Mm. It's not about safety. And there are people who obviously have issues of control of their own. You know, it's very obvious to me that they do. And I say to wives, or do you have a problem with that? No, he's only worried about me. And I think, well, are they, though? But it's, it's, it is very interesting when you've got that age group, because this is where they're trying to target for prevention. How do we prevent these things? Well, Heatherick says the brain's frontal lobe controls behavior and impulsivity. So if that function's impaired, where you've got a frontal lobe disorder, the midbrain where all the emotional processing occurs, it takes over with immediate effect on feelings like revenge and justice. So when you've got a stalker with frontal lobe impairment, a personality or conduct disorder, and they embark on a revenge crusade, they're incurable and unstoppable. So I guess the trick is to, for people to be more aware 
of the other issues. In, so if you've got someone stalking and, and they've, they're obviously antisocial, which you'd see in their offending, then there's, that's a red flag in itself, isn't it? would have to be a red flag. What he's saying is that the overlap between borderline personality disorder, stalking and murder, has prompted the Lamplu Trust to call for better education of police. So police need, and as we've educated police in domestic violent behaviours and red flags in domestic violence, we need to actually educate the police in understanding stalking behaviours so that they can spot the warning signs before they escalate, especially in stranger stalking. I think one of the biggest red flags for me is the repeated breaching of court orders. So that what they say is anyone who repeats, well, I think we know that, don't we, from domestic violence, any offender that repeatedly breaches a court order or has persistently stalked someone over a long period of time, they're risk indicators. Well, it's like they're saying that nothing is going to stop them doing what they want to do. Yeah. Well, then that's got to be a risk indicator. If professionals can change the way they view stalkers, so that they see them as potentially dangerous, dangerous people, not just stalk, nuisance stalkers, if you like. If they can change the way they view stalkers, they're more able to accurately assess their potential for future harm. You know, I, I just think, how can, how can we look at them and say, what could we have done differently? Well, in the John Edwards case, those more recent relevant assaults and threats and his violent history, you know, and the fact that a previous partner had fled to Queensland and an adult daughter had taken out an AVO to protect herself and her children. When you look at all of that in the bigger picture, doesn't it? They would have been watching him. The reports didn't go in. And the one report that did go in was qualified with a comment that sort of suggested that perhaps this might have been motivated by an upcoming family court case. You know, whether they saw the, the victim, the wife, as exaggerating when she wasn't actually. Usually people underplay those things down. They don't, they don't exaggerate them. They usually don't tell you the whole story. It must be horrifying for the ex-partners and children of Edwards. It must be traumatising as well for them. Oh, it's look totally. I was a mentor once for a lady writing a book, a beautiful woman who was a former judge's associate, who was a very young woman, had married a GP and had two children. And um, she'd married this GP who was like the everyone in the, a tiny little country town where they lived thought he was wonderful. He was a very violent and controlling man behind the scenes, very violent. And she eventually fled from him because she feared for her life. He was always messing with guns always playing with firearms, and he was very menacing. And she fled, taking her two children and hid from him. And eventually the marriage ended, and he went to work overseas where he met a, a young Fijian nurse who he brought back to Australia. They had a little girl, and he ended up shooting her. It was a murder-suicide. He shot the wife, the child, and himself. And what was interesting, the day that he did that, the day that that crime occurred in country Victoria, the, the former wife and, her, and her, uh, now grown-up children were living miles away, miles away in New South Wales. And she said she woke up on this one day, this weekend, this day that she woke up was a long weekend, with this awful, awful feeling of something terrible was going to happen. And she had no idea why, and they'd been separated for years. But she woke up in tears on this day and cried and cried and didn't know what she was crying for, to the point that her sister came over and called a doctor. And she said, I've got no idea why. I should I just feel like something awful's happened? And by tea time that night, two police officers were on her doorstep to tell her that her former husband and his wife and child were dead. 
And when the police turned up on the doorstep, the first question she asked, she said, is it Stuart, her husband? Is he dead? And the police said, how did you know? And she said she didn't know how she knew. She just knew. She just knew. And, and she says, that could have been me, but it was her. Thank you to Megan Norris, author of the books Perfect Victim, On Father's Day, and Look What You Made Me Do, among others. You can buy these online and check out her website, newscoop.com.au. We'll have these details in our show notes. Thank you to our wonderful patrons, including Charmaine Proud, Belinda Lee, Emma Yates, Sarah Keast, Joni Condos, Stephen Barker, and Kim McSweeney. Thank you for downloading Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.